I'm Cassie Ringsdorf, and this is the FEMA Podcast. For individuals affected by a disaster, recovery can often be a daunting task. A task that may involve figuring out where to live temporarily while your home is rebuilt, how to replace items that were lost or damaged, deal with the emotional toll of disaster loss, and figure out how to finance it all. What people may not realize, though, is many times there are individuals who can walk you through that process, help you understand what your options might be, and assist in finding resources to help you return to a new, normal way of life. On this episode of the FEMA Podcast, we'll talk to John Pryon, the Director of Lutheran Disaster Services, and Jeannie Moran, FEMA Region 5 Voluntary Agency Liaison, about disaster case management or recovering navigators who partner with survivors and provide much needed support to sort through the many facets of disaster recovery. We'll learn how it works, who these people are that provide this critical service, and why it's so important for successful long-term recovery. John, Jeannie, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Before we get too far into the conversation about disaster case management, I wanted to help our listeners understand how the recovery process works, Jeannie. Can you quickly first describe the typical sequence of assistance to individuals after a disaster occurs? So thinking through individual assistance, the sequence is pretty simple. first stop is at our individual and households program. I like to think of it as a house. Um, Not necessarily the home, but the house. Uh, What kind of disaster damage was sustained to a home, and how can we get that home back to its pre-disaster stage, at least in terms of its nuts and bolts? So you're thinking about floors, roofs, the the real um, nuts and bolts of your home. Then you're, you're offered uh, to apply for the Small Business Administration's uh, disaster loan for individuals where you can have up to a certain amount of dollars in loans. Um, <clears throat> it's possible a lot of our homeowners have a hard time swallowing that um, and choose not to apply. Um, we always encourage people to apply, though, because you can always turn down the loan. Because if you are not uh, approved for a small business administration loan, you're then directed to another FEMA program called Other Needs Assistance. Other Needs Assistance, remember how I said how the individual assistance is really like the house Uh, Other needs assistance helps with more of the home. Um, So what makes a house a home? Things like contents in a home or uh, some of the uh, the other additive things. Hopefully you never want to think about this, but you could also include any funeral expenses, health-related expenses come out of that program as well. It's sort of a simplistic view, but... I'd say that alongside of this, voluntary agencies are providing relief uh, as the program is going through. We work with our disasters, or sorry, our voluntary agencies to make sure that they're aware of what those efforts are and what kind of financial assistance or otherwise is provided to homeowners so we don't duplicate services. But all along, it's, it's kind of easy to think of voluntary agencies at the end of that uh, sequence of delivery is what we call it, but really they're there the whole time, um, providing response support, some of that intermediate disaster recovery support, but of course what we're planning on talking about today, long-term recovery disaster support. Now, I think that's a really nice transition because, um, you know, so often people, I think, turn to FEMA in hopes that 
they'll get right back to where they were before the disaster with that FEMA assistance only. And it's so important that people understand that's usually not going to make them whole, get them back to that point. It's a step, but it's it's certainly just one piece of it. And I'm, I'm interested, John, from your, your perspective, this disaster case management that Jeannie just alluded to, how does that play a part in people are on the road to recovery, they have these resources, but there's still some gaps in, in those needs that they have? At what point does kind of disaster case management, is that an option and, and why would it be? Sure. Yeah, initially, in the ideal world, um, disaster case management would start immediately after the event in some form or fashion. I like to, to call it actually recovery navigators. I think about it when I'm explaining it because it seems like it resonates a little bit more with people. But if you think about, you know, the system that Jeannie just mentioned, you know, we know it so well because we've been in it for so long, but somebody who's coming in new for never heard of kind of the sequence of assistance or how that, that process works, particularly after experiencing a trauma, some sort of trauma, whether it's a loss of home, life, property, et cetera, to, to have someone thrust into that system to then try to understand all the, the ins and outs of, of that process is really difficult and overtaxes, you know, their emotional capacity. So really disaster case managers, as I like to call them recovery navigators, are the people that would partner, partner with those survivors and walk alongside them and help them through you know, to sort through all the different options, to sort through everything that's on the table, to kind of sort through, like Janie said, to pull out, well, here's the house, here's the physical infrastructure piece, but that's not the only thing to recovery. There are all these other things. We also talk about in case management, we talk about hidden needs, some of the things that survivors might not even think about because they haven't gotten to that place yet. They're still trying to process their story. They haven't told their story enough to start remembering all the details. So really... I would love to see in an ideal world, we're not there yet, we're working on it continuously. I think, you know, with our with our federal, state, and, and nonprofit partners and, and private sector partners as well, continuing to build those partnerships to say, how can we get trained people in place as quickly as possible after a disaster to then expedite the recovery process to help people start to sift through all the different options and all the things that they need to do so that they can gather you know, the resources that are necessary for recovery, whether that be personal, you know, governmental or nonprofit or business side, any of those things to be able to collate all those resources together in a workable fashion around a recovery plan that then will make them whole. But as Jeannie said, you know, really the the federal piece is only a part of the puzzle. And so there are, you know, so many more pieces that need to align as well. And that's really where disaster case management comes into play. Now, who are these disaster case managers, um, you know, in these communities that are helping these individuals? Yeah, case managers could really be anyone, um, depending on the disaster, depending on the community, what kind of capacity is there. Uh, there are trained people who, who are trained helpers that really walk alongside survivors to then help them build a holistic recovery plan that would address all facets of their need after a disaster. So, you know, in, in smaller communities, rural, more low, low attention rural disasters that I've seen, it's, you know, school teachers, uh, retired school teachers, sometimes teachers on summer break, if it's a smaller event, um, I've seen you know bankers, we've seen doctors, we've seen all kinds of people from all walks of life. Um, but really, it's about a heart for helping people and being 
being kind of like a detective and you're willing to turn over every single rock to help people find the resources that they need. So it helps a lot of times to have some knowledge of the social service infrastructure in your community. The biggest thing is just to have a knowledge of the culture of the community. So when we try to, when we find people who are doing that or we're trying to when we find people who we want to recruit to be case managers, we really look for those folks that are, are leaders in the community and hopefully, you know, have some knowledge of what the culture looks like, who maybe some of the power players are in those communities that then, you know, can rise up and say, we could take that on and have a passion um, for that kind of work. Also, we always say, too, it, it helps to have an, a knowledge of what the experience is and having walked in that before. Um, so a lot of times disaster survivors are really great disaster case managers. However, we always say you never serve as a case manager in the same event in which you were affected. So say my household was affected in a tornado in my community. I would not be fit in my mind to serve as a case manager because I was traumatized then too. So I don't want to have any kind of projection or any of any of that conflict of interest. But, you know, two years from now, when another tornado comes through and hits my community, I could be a perfect case manager because I could really relate firsthand to that survivor's experience and be very, very empathetic and be able to, to really help people kind of understand and, and work through their stories. Um, we also say that, you know, disaster case managers are not mental health professionals. Um, we're very careful to say, you know, you are not trained as, and certified as a mental health professional. You only are able to be there as, as kind of a companion. And so when something is more intense or more in-depth than your training allows, that is when you need to connect with those professionals. So that's why, again, I say it's so important to have a knowledge of the landscape and the community and those service providers. So then when some of those kind of challenges come up, you can say, I know a person who that I can hand off and you can work with them so that it's not um, putting putting the case manager in this in kind of the spot where he or she shouldn't be in that situation. I would like to go back uh, to something you mentioned uh, earlier about kind of recovery being a puzzle and these case managers helping them work through that puzzle, uh, if you will. I guess so if you haven't been through a disaster, you might just see it as, oh, you just have to rebuild your home. That should be somewhat easy. But it's so much more complicated than that, right? Can you help us understand what recovery can look like or what some of this work might be that goes beyond just helping somebody rebuild their home? One of the things that comes to my mind immediately is I've had so many conversations with with homeowners that, you know, they're affected by a flood. And so water comes in, floods the house, comes out. And then, you know, the first thing they say is we're okay because we have homeowners insurance. First thing is homeowners insurance doesn't cover overland flooding. So then that's one of the things that a lot of people just don't, you don't see, you don't think about. Um, And then... But so even beyond that, you know, you have to think about all the different things that a, that a house, I won't go into the whole details, but I, some of my background is in construction. So everything that's behind the wall of a house, you know, it's not just the water comes in, the water goes out, everything's good. You clean the outside of the house, you clean the outside of the walls, and then you move on. You have to look at the inside. So I think, too, that's what that really can be used as an analogy for people as well. Um, you might not have suffered a physical injury, but you also have to deal with some of that interior work that's going on. So whatever you lost during that disaster, it's trying to find 
you know, how do you grapple with that? How do you work through that? Um, that's one piece. Also, you know, it's all the different pieces and parts of those families, whether it's children, whether it's, you know, older adults that live in the home as well, any of those other social infrastructure and social supports that may be at play on an ongoing basis. Um, one thing too, I think, you, you know, you have to look at some of the entitlement programs. So sometimes those can get inadvertently shut off when a disaster money comes into an account and they're at threshold, you know, the balance of the account is above the threshold. So then you have to make sure um, in those conversations, you know, to have some of those conversations with those governmental partners. I think you could, I mean, we could really go on and on talking yeah. scenarios. Unem unemployment, underemployment, that is a result of the disaster. One thing I like to do when I talk about unmet need is uh, National VOAD has naturally started to organize itself around unmet needs through the committees. So, of course, as John represents the Disaster Case Management Committee, but there's also a case management committee, I'm sorry, there's also a National VOAD committee around emotional and spiritual care. There's one around uh, disaster rebuilding and repairing. There are a whole host of organizations who specialize in mold remediation and muckouts. Uh, so sometimes I, I, I use it as a cheat sheet to think through unmet needs because, like we mentioned, that piece of the puzzle, the federal piece, is so small. Uh, and we know that the majority of disaster survivors will come out of the federal recovery process with significant, potentially, unmet needs. Uh, those volunteer agencies have spent decades organizing themselves. So first of all, they're not stepping on each other's toes, but also that they're responsive to those unmet needs. And I like the analogy of the inside and the outside of a, of a human being. Um, one thing that we talk about with repetitive flooding, which in the Midwest is you know, a, big, a big thing that happens, and honestly throughout the entire country is you think that you have insurance, and you don't. Um, that knowledge is, of course, an educational opportunity, but it's also incredibly traumatic. Uh, and for repetitive flooding, uh, you're, you're home constantly being bombarded with water. You know that that affects resale. That, that for a normal human being, that is going to have some, some mental and emotional uh, fatigue connected to your experience with recovery. It's going to slow you down. It could potentially affect your, your home life, your professional life, and on and on. So disasters are not just this tornado comes in, I rebuild my house, I'm feeling great, I walk away. Uh, we know that there are significant psychological components to disaster recovery. Um, so our, our voluntary agencies, alongside of government partners even beyond FEMA, because there's a whole federal piece that we haven't talked about, which are other federal agencies who provide support during disasters that help to fulfill those unmet needs that don't just get people back in a home, but rather give them their lives back or at least a new life uh, that, that they can thrive in. Now, I have a question. Um, if you could just briefly tell me, why is disaster case management so important? And if a disaster, uh, if in a disaster, disaster case management wasn't available to an individual, how could that impact their recovery? On a very simple level, I think disaster case management is by nature probably one of the best force multipliers and value adds. We've, we've seen this across the board in multiple communities, and it's, it's hard to quantify exactly, but you know, there's still some metrics around that we're trying to track, but just saying, you know, think about someone who 
number one, like Jeannie said, thinks they have flood insurance or thinks they're someone who thinks they are insured, but then to find out that they're not. And then to have to face the entire thing by themselves. Really, I think the place where the nonprofit and faith-based sector comes in that is so important is, you know, we can bring that wealth of knowledge and we can expedite that process exponentially because we know some of those things and have seen that in so many different places. So we can help homeowners and renters and anyone who was affected really kind of minim- really move towards reducing the amount of time it takes to get towards recovery because we can avoid some of those pitfalls that we've seen so many times and help guide the conversation. Granted, we always still say Disasters are owned locally. So it really comes back to that local community and that homeowner or that renter or that survivor there to drive that process. And we, I also like to think when I'm talking recovery navigation, it's almost also like a a disaster recovery coach. We're not driving that process, but we are helping those people move forward and helping them identify some of the pitfalls and risk and benefits and and try to line out a best course for them without driving which direction they need to go. We try to create that sense of a partnership and then put put some options on the table and help them understand the risks and the benefits of each of those options so that then they can choose the best option for them. We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.